Okay, no video today, but this is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe it, every word is true. And I believe it is all that I need. Oh, and I hope you are believing that more and more every week as we say this. So turn in your Bibles and have your questions out. And we are starting with Matthew chapter 1. And Matthew chapter 1, again, is the lineage of Jesus. And again, that's, you know, we usually skip over that. But we saw five women in there. And from these five women, I want to go over words that you've learned. Because of these specific five words or these five women, I, w- I want to hear what, what he taught us through these women. What, what, what do these women have in common? What do these women have in common? I know four, and then Mary is, you know, not like the other four, but yet all five have something in common, and that is what? What did all five women have? They were all what? They were, they were all, they, they were all, they were all women. They were all sinners. Um, they all had a heart for wanting what they had learned. All of them were willing to learn. All of them wanted a piece of Jesus. They, they wanted, even though they didn't understand, I mean, even Tamar, she, she did it in a very unusual way, but she wanted to stay in that family, and she knew it was her right to be able to stay in that family. You see Rahab, I mean, what a promiscuous life, but somewhere along the line, she had heard about him, and she wanted to know. These are all attributes that Jesus loves, and these are the kind of attributes he will use. When you have a longing desire, when you really, even though whatever your past is, I mean, if you want to sing just as I am right about now, but then he will, then he will take you just as you are, but then he will grow you from there. And if you have a desire to not want to stay where you're at, but to grow, this, he says, that's what I can use. Another thing you see is that, look at, look what he does. He forgives. And when he forgives, he remembers there's sin no more. And he will be able to use forgiven sinners. I mean, these women, I just go over Matthew 1, and these women have taught us so much. And then when in the, we, we end the first chapter and go into the second, does our heart condition matter? Does our heart condition relate to our behavior and how we act? I mean, that's a no-brainer when you read the end of, Joe, end of Matthew 1 and Matthew 2. Look at their heart condition. Look at Mary and Joseph. I mean, why do you think of all the hundreds of people God could have chosen? He chose Mary and Joseph. It's because they had a heart condition that was willing to listen to them, obey them, and trust them. Because is this going to be an easy life for, for Absolutely not. So he's got to pick two people that will hang on tight to him and who are willing, who know that they can't do it without him. So their heart condition, their heart was wide open to listening and obeying. And that's, again, who the Lord can use. But now, what about the wise men? What about the wise men? I often thought that they were called wise men because they were probably some smart men with high education living there in the East. But I have a whole new perception of what wise men are. Wise men or wise women are anyone who is willing, again, to listen and to obey 
and to want to know more. Because these wise men, I think they're called wise because somewhere along the line, they had learned about the Messiah. Or why would they leave the comforts of whatever they were doing and want to go and trip way across who knows where to be able to discover that there was a child and look what they did. They had to know him because when they got there, the first thing they did was, and here, he, whether he was a baby or whether he was a toddler, we don't know, but he certainly didn't look like a king. And yet, what do the wise men do when they meet Jesus? They bow before him and they bring gifts and of all gifts. I mean, it wasn't diapers and wipes and onesies and all those kinds of things, practical gifts. These wise men knew who Jesus was. They bring gold because, yes, he is going to be a king. They bring frankincense because he is, he is a priest. And they bring myrrh because they know he's going to die. And what he's come for. They have learned this. That's why they're wise men. And then when the Lord comes to him in a dream and says, don't go back home. I mean, you know, they, they leave all the comforts of home and go to some other place. They know so much about the Messiah that they are so willing to listen and to obey. And those two we learn from Proverbs, they must go hand in hand. Not only do you listen and take it in, but if you leave Bible study and you say, oh, that's a good lesson, and you don't let it go down into, and again, we'll go to that fertile soil, if you don't let it grow and take root, if you just listen and you don't put it into practice, you're missing the best part, the life-changing power of this message. And then in contrast, look at the heart of Herod. I mean, this, if this doesn't prove to you the difference in a heart condition, look, if your heart is not right, look at your left to your human nature, a heart without a desire for the Lord. All he cared about was who? Herod. That's right. That's what happens. A heart without Jesus, all you care about is you. And then when that, gets, when that starts getting challenged, look what you stoop to do. I mean, I look at killing little two-year-olds and under. That is unfathomable to me, but that is a heart. That's the, that's the spiral downward of a sinner's heart without a Savior. You are capable of doing the worst. So then in chapter 3, you see how Jesus then is, um, he is, there's a person that has come to, to prepare the way. So in John 3, or in Matthew chapter 3, we see John the Baptist. And as unusual as, as we might think he was, he really wasn't. Because he just shows us that this is what it looks like when you don't care what people think. When you know the reason why you're here. When you have tunnel vision in that, that of who your top priority is. You see his strength and his bravery. He dares confront those Pharisees. And, and there's something about, you know, I'm not... You know, I mean, sure, eating locusts and, and that kind of thing. But I think it's, 
it's not those details. It's that it just shows that he watched the, the Lord provide and he wasn't caught up with the things of this world. So right off, I mean, and, and then, by the way, what was his, what was his no-nonsense sermon anyway? What, what was his no-nonsense preaching about? Repent, repent. And look, that, that's in, in verse 2. But then look at, look at, at the end of that chapter or in the, the in end of chapter or in the middle of chapter 4. I just want to make sure that you see that John the Baptist's message is repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then you see Jesus breaking out into his preaching ministry. And what is, what is Jesus, what's Jesus' sermon title? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So both of them, I mean, you know, John the Baptist and Jesus, when they started their ministry, what did they say? You must start with what? Repentance. And, and why? Why? And I asked you the question, why is that message essential in this salvation process? And believe me, nowadays, I think people try to skip this. Because it is not easy, but it's got to be the first step. Because if you don't, and I repeat, Salvation Day, yes, it's our greatest day. Greatest day. However, that greatest day has to start being your worst day. Because you have got to come to grips with who you are and your need of a Savior. And if you don't, that's why John's and Jesus' message, it's essential that you know you have got to confess and repent or what won't happen? Salvation, because you won't get the forgiveness of him. You won't experience the salvation power. You got to turn. You got to confess and repent and then turn and see him. And know that he is your only way. Salvation is found in none other. There is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. But the first step of that salvation process is that you've got to see yourself in need of his Savior. So when you would see John and Jesus' sermon title, you have to see that that's got to be the first step or you're going to miss the rest. And the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven has a name. And its name is Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, the I Am, whatever you want to call him. But the kingdom of heaven has a name. And all what was promised in the Old Testament for hundreds and hundreds of years is here. What a message. Okay, Jesus came out of the waters of baptism, and it's so symbolic of going down in your old life and coming out in your new. And, and, but Jesus didn't have to do that. You go down in your sin, and you come out forgiven. The water baptism is a beautiful symbol of that. Jesus didn't have to do that, but he wanted to because he wanted to demonstrate that it's because of him that whole going down and coming up is possible. 
And what an affirmation to hear his father's voice up talk about a, a, a momentum to be able to go through these three years that were going to be the most difficult, but to know that he was following his father's plan. What lesson is there in there for you and I? He didn't say the way was going to be easy, but if you know, if you are striving, if your desire is to be in the center of God's will, to be able to hear him say that I am your father and I am pleased with you, that should give us momentum that we shouldn't want anything else, even though the way might be difficult. John always knew his place too, didn't he? John knew his place. He never, he never put himself in the same category as Jesus. He never told Jesus what to do. And he stayed humble before him. And that is exactly the common denominator that's necessary to be his child. It's that you stay humble before him. You never reverse positions. And sometimes when we think we want something, sometimes I think we get in the position, we kind of move him out of his place, and we get there. We want control. We want control more than we want to submit. And that is such human nature. But we need to be brought above our human nature. And that's through the power of God's spirit. All right, then, then chapter 4, what is it, temptation anyway? What is it, temptation? Jesus was brought into the desert by the spirit on purpose, in other words. He needed to go through this temptation because... Every one of us is tempted. Every one of us, when we leave this place, are going to be confronted with something. This day is going to be full of temptations. And we've got to decide what we're going to do with them. And we need to be able to go to him. And, and I'll tell you, don't you just love going to someone who's been through it instead of someone who's just a smart mouth trying to give you a lot of big advice, but they've never been where you've been. They've never walked where you've walked. I mean, sometimes that's just a hard pill to swallow when people are giving me all kinds of advice and they haven't a clue to what I'm going through. But when we go to Jesus, he does have a clue. When we say to him, this temptation is starting to overwhelm me. I think I'm going to fall to it. And you go to him, he knows how hard it is because he's been there. Isn't that wonderful? The Hebrew writer says that, that we have a Savior that has walked where we've walked. He has been through what we've been through. So we can go to him with anything, and he'll say, I get it, I understand so, yes, he was tempted. What is a temptation anyway? I, I thought, let's just let's talk a minute about it. What is, what is it? Where does it come from? We know that, right? We know that we have a tempter. We have an enemy. We have an enemy that will do anything to keep us away from, from our relationship with Jesus. And he knows how to push the buttons in our weakness, too. So to be aware of it, I think, is half the battle, that you are aware that you have an enemy, that you are aware that you as a human being have weaknesses, that, that he loves to allure you into, that is hard for you to resist. Maybe it's, just, maybe it's who you're with or where you are or what you do or whatever. We all have our weakness that Satan knows and loves to keep bringing us back there. Maybe it's just a self-pity attitude. 
It's so easy to be critical or whatever, whatever. We all have something that Satan knows, and he loves to bring us there. So, but can he make us do it? No, no. He does not have that kind of power. He cannot make us do it. We choose it. That's what free will is. We can, we can choose Jesus or we can choose to follow the ways of the enemy and, our, and he uses self to do it. And boy, that is one subject we love. We love ourself. We love having it our way. So it is something that he doesn't have to work hard at. We have to work hard at not listening to him. That's what takes hard work. But we make a choice, and James says it, that he can only dangle it in front of us, but we have to, if we choose it or we choose not. <laughs> it's kind of, I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but do you remember the Canaanite woman? I said, you know, Charles Spurgeon said that three-letter prayer was the handiest prayer ever. And re- do you remember what that prayer is? Remember when the Canaanite came to Jesus and she said three words, and that is exactly what you and I can take anywhere and everywhere. And when we feel temptation, what are those three words? Lord, help me. That's right. What can a temptation do if you succumb to it? And it might, you know, it might, you know, not seem like a big deal, but it can be a big deal. A temptation, in, and not to be overdramatic, but I just want to get the realism in. Sometimes temptations can do what? Destroy. It can destroy a relationship. It can destroy, oh, you put in the blanks. It can destroy. I can remember, I remember when we talked about this, I remember my mom telling me, I think she, she was so nervous. I don't know why she was so nervous, but she was. And every time I went out on a date, she kept saying, remember, five minutes of fun can ruin your life. Huh? She just kept saying that over and over. And it's, you know, and it, but it's true, but that's with any temptation. I mean, you know what she was talking about, but, but that's with any temptation. It might look so appealing and luring and you're caught in the now and, but that temptation, when you succumb to it, it can really ruin things. Because there's always consequences to what? There always consequences to sin. Always. So what must you do? What must you do when the temptation comes? Because let's face it, it is going to come. Humpting times today, it's going to come. You call on the name of the Lord. You say, Lord, help me. You do. And, it, and sometimes, you know, it, you just can't leave the situation. It just, it just wants to keep, it keeps pulling you. And remember our friend Joseph, the more Potiphar's wife tried, I mean, I'm sure. In fact, one time I even asked him that. I said, okay, you know the story of Potiphar's wife. I want to know how hard it is to resist a young, powerful, beautiful woman when she's coming on to you. I want to know how hard is that. And I remember Tom saying, you don't want to know. I mean, in other words, he just explained in male terms that that is nothing to shake a stick. I mean, that, that is nothing to take lightly. 
That is a powerful force. So sometimes when the temptation is just so appealing and so, so alluring, and you know you're going to enjoy it so much, sometimes you just have to run. I mean, remember, remember the TV program. You still want to know, I know, and I'm still not going to tell you. But that's why sometimes I just have to run when I know it's on and go take a bath. I mean, you, got, you just have to do something like that. The temptation is powerful. And if it's not going to do you any good, and there's going to be consequences. So, all right, in chapter 5, we see... We see that um, Jesus has, you know, called his disciples, and at least some of them up to this point. Matthew um, shows later when he's called. but And I don't know whether this is in chronological order or whether the Sermon on the Mount was one sermon. I don't know whether it was, it's pieces of, of Matthew um, hearing Jesus' instruction at different times, and he compiled it together as one sermon. I don't know, and I really don't care. All I know is that the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, is three chapters of the most powerful instruction on how to live his way. This, this is the way he wants us to live. And he spells out about every area and every category in our life. And so this Sermon on the Mount should be gone over and over. And we, we may know it as we started this Sermon on the Mount. We, he, Matthew starts with the instruction that Jesus gave on the Beatitudes. And I thought that was very wise. And I'm sure whether it was chronological order and it just naturally, or whether Jesus um, inspired Matthew to put this first. But before you start to hear Jesus' instruction on how you are to live, you better check and have a better attitude. You better make sure that you are starting with the right heart and with the right mind because if you don't, this instruction is going nowhere or even worse, you're going to um, just say no to it because this is not easy instruction and yet this is what he expects from his children. So he said, okay, before we even start, let's check the heart motive. Let's check the heart attitude. Let's see if you're going into this with the right frame of mind. Let's see if you really want to know. And he starts right off by saying, I'm go- I'll bless you. Jesus says, I will bless you. And I don't know if you've caught that yet, but when you hear that he is willing to bless you, you don't want to miss that. Because when he blesses, he makes it so worth your while. You don't want to miss one of his blessings. And we don't know all what they're going to be. We don't even know if we're going to experience here. We don't, all we know is that his blessings, he promises to bless us. And, and I, I put, what does blessing mean? What does his blessing mean? Make it worth my while. Because he knows that when he asks us to, to live his way, he knows it's not going to be an easy way to live. But he puts that momentum in there, but I'll make it worth your while. And he starts right off the bat. The first, the, worst, the first check of your attitude is, I'll make it so worth your while if you are willing to look at your spirit and make it pure by, com- by connecting to my spirit. I will make it so worth your while if you realize that you are poor in spirit. On and left to your own, you are poor in spirit. And that you know you need 
the capital S spirit running your life. See, right off the bat, he wants us to see. It's just kind of like the word repent. you got to start with the reality of who you are and how badly you need him, and you can't do it without him. And then he even goes to fire. And, and don't you appreciate this about Jesus? He doesn't say, oh, and come to me, and I will bless you and make it worth your while. Your life will just be a piece of cake, and you won't have any problems. And no, he says, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to tell you the truth, that this kind of life is not going to be an easy one. And people are going to misunderstand you. They're going to call you names and insult you for my sake. You could even have real persecution for me. So he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, just put a little fluffy frosting here and say, oh, everything's wonderful. No, he just says it the way it is. This is not an easy life. But then he, he finishes by saying, but great, great is what? Great is your reward in heaven. I'll make it so worth your while. And we've talked about the reward. I mean, you know, goodness sakes, if, if the, his reward is just looking into his face and he looking into yours and he says to you, I know what you went through and I say to you, well done, welcome. Look what I've prepared for you. Do you think there can be any greater reward than that? When you get those words from your Messiah, from your Savior, the one who gave us all so that you could even have this because you didn't deserve it. And then he said, remember, you are salt. And so in the questions, I, I said, that was kind of new for us. I mean, I always thought that we were to be salt and light. But he comes right up and says, my children, you are salt and you are light. But where we have to talk about it is, is how salty are you and how bright are, is your light? So you are salt and you are light. But you know what? If your salt doesn't have any taste to it, what good is it? If your light is hidden, if you're hiding that light and you're ashamed of the gospel or you're afraid to stand on, on the principles of God's word for whatever reason, then you're, not, you're sure not a bright light to somebody who might be watching who said, man, I didn't expect that action out of her because she labels herself a Christian. I didn't expect that. See, you are salt and you are light. And as you grow in your relationship to him, your salt gets saltier and your light gets brighter. But you and I are salt and light. We just gotta, we've just got to always check to see, are we making Jesus taste good? Is our light shining bright that people can see even though they might not understand? But something is different about you. It's called peace and joy and trust. And no, that shows, that shows. Jesus in this chapter, he starts making sure that, that we know that sin has consequences. He also wants to make sure that we know that it's not just the action that's a sin. Because so often we think, well, if we didn't actually do it, then we're not guilty. And he's saying, no, i got a whole new message for you. If you're thinking it, and you've got all pictures in your mind about it, and you, even though it might not have come out in an action, let me tell you, you've already committed that sin. 
So he takes us down a different road of, I want, if it's in your heart, if it's in your mind, even though you've, you've kept it from coming out in an action, that's just a matter of time because it eventually will somehow. And that whole thing with murder, you don't need a gun or a knife. Sometimes you just need a word coming out of your mouth that you can kill somebody with. So he's saying, you know, this is so much bigger than what you think. You read the Ten Commandments, okay, no, no, I don't murder. Oh, no, no, I don't commit. Hey, I, I can see what's going on in that head of yours. So he just kind of opened our eyes. He said, no, you take every thought captive to the Lord Jesus. If that thought does not belong in your mind, then you get rid of it. And then he says, be trustworthy. Get to the point where you, when, when you say yes, you mean yes. And when you say no, you mean no. And that people trust you. They know that your yes is yes and your no is no. And they can count on you. That your reputation, your lifestyle, they count on that. I think that's so important. And, and then he says, I changed this too. I changed this too. You know, you're, you've been taught an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. He said, well, I've changed that too because you know what? If someone has wronged you, if someone has taken your Coke, well, give them another one too. I mean, do the opposite of what your natural human instinct is. So Jesus says, I've come to change things because it's love that wins people to me. It's not condemnation. It's not writing them off. It's grace, grace that I started, grace that's working through you to others. That's what changes lives. So, I mean, he's, he says, I've come to fulfill the law. I'm changing things. And loving your enemies, oh, that's a new concept. And that isn't easy. And he says, I know it's not easy, but what good is it if you just love people that are good to you? No, how can you show Jesus best is when you, when you are willing to put yourself aside and you're willing to love your enemy. Again, love wins people, not condemnation. And then right smack, right smack in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, be careful, be careful. He uses those words, be careful, chapter 6. And what does he know we have to be careful of? Again, what is so, so right there in every human being? You want people to see. You want want the recognition. It's about you. That is the natural instinct of human nature, is that it's about me. And he says that you have to be careful. And he uses a word, and, and he calls us something. When you, when you just say one thing and you mean another or you act another way, when he says, I can see the hidden secrets of your heart, and you are so phony, He called him a hypocrite. I'm telling you, you call me any name you want, but if you call me a hypocrite, that'll tear me right to my soul. To me, the word hypocrite has got to be a word that you and I just absolutely detest, and we do not want to to have someone call us that, that they see that we talk one thing and we live another. 
he talked about prayer. And remember, he taught us the Lord's Prayer. And, and you know, I am more and more convinced because Paul says we are to pray ceaselessly, that we have to deprogram ourselves of what we think prayer is. You know, I still think in our minds we think prayer is that special time that we go to the Lord, we close our eyes, fold our hands, and we start communicating with him. But I can't do that 24 hours of the day, and you can't either. And yet Paul says we are to pray ceaselessly. To me, that word means connecting. You and I need to connect him. We never should disconnect. If you disconnect, if I disconnect, guess who's in charge now? You bet. So he said that we are to pray, we are to stay connected to him, and if we if we are connected to him, guess what we'll say? This Lord's Prayer, do you know if you're connected to him, this Lord's Prayer proves that we're going to make it through the day no matter what happens today. If you stay connected to him, you are going to be reminded all day that you have a father. In your mind, what does the best dad in the whole world do? Well, guess what? You have one. You have a father who loves you, that loves you more than his own life. He would give his life for you. He will take your hand and lead you down the unknown, but he always will take you to a place that you need to go. Um, he always has your best interest in mind. I mean, everything that you picture, he will discipline if needs to. He will encourage when you're downhearted. Whatever you think a father is supposed to do, you have one. And if you are connected to him all day long, you know that you have a father who is doing that for you. But if you stay connected to him, you'll also know that that father is also an almighty God who is in control of all things. And nothing gets by him. And when you're connected to him, that's constantly going through your mind. And if you stay connected to him, you will know that the kingdom of God has come and his name is Jesus. And you have a savior that took your sin, bore it, remembers it no more, and now has saved you and you have an eternal home with him. I mean, just think, if you stay connected to him, that's going to be going through your mind all day too. Whoa, that's pretty good, knowing that the kingdom has come. All is taken care of. All is well with my soul. If you stay connected to him, you will always be going through. That's right. His will is perfect. I might not like this. I might not understand this. But, yep, his will is perfect on earth just as, as much as it is in heaven. See, can't you just start to see the kind of victory day you can have when you stay connected to him? The truth of who he is and what he's done constantly goes through your mind. And so when the temptations come, when you start, you know, feeling the overwhelming, oh, that's right, I have a father, he's an almighty God. I have a savior that um, I've been bought and paid for. Um, his will is perfect. If you stay connected to him, you will be reminded that no matter what happens in this day, that he, he has, he's going to supply everything you need. All your needs will be met. If you're connected to him, you can go through the day knowing that you have someone that, that knows your needs and will meet him today. If you stay connected to him, you are also going to know. You are also going to know that he has forgiven you. 
He has forgiven you and he remembers your sins no more. And then he comes back and says, but then I expect you to forgive others. And then he explains that a little bit. He says, because I know that's a tough one. You like to take forgiveness, but you don't like to give it. He said, let me just tell you the severity of this forgiving thing and this unforgiving thing. He said, you don't forgive, then the Father in heaven isn't going to forgive you. Oh, that's a little strong, isn't it? You bet it's strong. And he says, if you have experienced the forgiveness of sins, if you've experienced that in your life, and remember later he tells the parable of that unmerciful servant who was forgiven the debt that was unpaybackable. And yet in the very next verse, he, he grabs that one guy who owes him 20 bucks and about chokes him to death. And then the master comes and because he heard and said, you don't even, you don't even realize what, what you've been forgiven and you can't forgive that guy of 20 bucks. Okay, then you're going to jail. In other words, he's saying, if you, if you can't forgive someone, even though it's, it hurts and it's terrible and they shouldn't have and it's not fair and all that kind of thing, compared to what Jesus did for you, it's 20 bucks. And he said, you got a problem. You don't realize the depth of what I did for you if you can't turn around and forgive someone else. So he had to put it in those terms. He had to be serious about that because it's, you know, you hang on to an unforgiving spirit after all. And how many times are we supposed to forgive? Oh, only again and again and again. So, I mean, he takes that subject very, very seriously. All right, in chapter 7, well, quickly in chapter 6, before we go to 7, that whole thing, I prayed it, so I really don't think we need to go too much. What will worry do to you? He says, do not worry. And you say, that's impossible. Yes, it is possible. Worry, what does worry, if you can picture this, worry leaves you immobile. It paralyzes you. You do nothing. Worry, you do nothing. So the circumstances there just change the word to concern. I'm concerned about this. And why are, what will concern do to you? Concern is an action word. An action that you will take, go to the one who knows the problem, knows how it's going to be solved, and knows the reason for. So instead of worry, just check to see if you are immobile. Or check to see if you are concerned because you're running to God's word and you're running to him. Sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes you do have to get your mind off yourself. But I'm telling you, all you have to do is run to this book and run, run to, the, to the one who understands it all. And you will see that you can live a different life. Instead of worrying, you're going to put yourself into the, the action word of being concerned. It will make all the difference in the world in how you handle your difficulty. Okay, in chapter 7, whose heart should you and I be most concerned about? <laughs> oh, yeah, our own. The thing is, whose, heart are we, whose hearts are we most concerned about? Everybody else's, yeah. And so that's basically what Jesus is saying here. You know, you're so busy looking at someone else's faults when sometimes you better take a look. This is the chapter where Jesus says, I want you to just know, I want you concerned about you. 
I want you to, to see how your spiritual life is going. I want to see how your faith is in motion. I want to see how you're growing. It's so easy to look at everybody or sit in the Bible study and say, boy, I'm so glad so-and-so is here. They really need it. Oh, let me tell you, you need it. I need it. And in chapter 7, he's basically, that's what he's basically saying. Would you stop looking at everybody else and start realizing you need this? You need me. And when he says, ask, seek, and knock, well, what's he expecting? By now, you should know this. I know it's not easy, but you should know it anyway. You should be asking and seeking and knocking for nothing but what? God's will. That's what he wants. When he says, ask and it will be given, well, yeah, he, of course he's going to. He can't wait to give you his will. And what is his will again? His will is good, pleasing, and perfect. That's right. I mean, common sense should tell us we should want nothing or ask for nothing but his will. Tell you when he talks about that narrow gate and that wide gate and how, how so many find the wide gate. Sure, because it's all about self and me, myself, and I. And how he says, few there be that really find the road that leads to life. I mean, that is, that is a real scary verse, if you ask me. I don't think there's going to be as many people in heaven as what we think. Because in Matthew 7, 21, when he says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom. Only those who do the will of my Father. So what in the world does that mean? We're only going to get to heaven if we do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is not that complicated. The will of the Father is that we know his son and that we accept his son. There's so many people who are playing church. They're playing good deeds. They think there's other ways to, to heaven. And he says, not everyone who, you know, is saying, Lord, Lord, and, and they're, they're saying one thing and living another, and they're fake and they're phony and they're all that. And he says, guess what? Um, that's all going to come out because um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord's getting in. And I think we, we've seen enough that you can sit in church and you can, you can profess and you can um, quote scripture and you can do it. But if Jesus hasn't taken over your heart, you're missing the main ingredient and then you're not getting there. You're not getting in. That's so serious. I mean, I, I could stop right here and say, we got to think about that because that is serious. You think about how many people sitting in church have not really heard that black and white truth. How do I know that for sure? Because I'm seeing the way Christians act and the way many of them are living and the, the, the compromises that they're making and the fads that they're falling to and all that. That's all I know. And then in, in chapter 8, what does Jesus think about faith? You look at that leper who says, I know you can, but Lord, if you're willing, make me clean. What about the faith of the centurion? That centurion, that, that he's a very powerful man, and yet what did he say? I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Oh, did Jesus love these two people so much? Why? Because they had faith. They, were, they accepted God's will. They accepted whatever his plan was. 
They knew themselves. This centurion had a hundred men under him, and yet he he knew compared to Jesus, he didn't even feel was Jesus it was right to bring Jesus to his home. So what is real faith? I mean, it's just a plain total belief in him. And what is he trying to teach in these chapters to his disciples? That faith. How necessary it is to have complete trust in him. How quickly we fall to our, our human ways and thinking that, oh, I can't possibly do without this. I can't possibly. He said, you trust me. I am enough. And he's slowly but surely, he's having to teach that to the disciples, to us. I saw this when I reviewed. I saw all of a sudden, it's, I see progression. He's teaching faith. He's teaching them how to trust him. And during that storm, and they said, oh, Lord, we're going to drown. And he said, you have a little faith. Why are you so afraid? So he's using these experiences to try to prove to them. He uses our experiences to prove to us he is who he is. Faith is a, a big ingredient in our walk with him. And he's got to keep working on us with that. Okay, who does, in chapter 9, who does Jesus love? <laughs> oh, my goodness. He loves everyone. Who does he go after? Everyone. But there again, you know, Llewellyn, like you said, it's free choice. But if you, if, I mean, he loves everyone. He came and died for everyone. He looked at Matthew, didn't he? He looked at Matthew, and he knew Matthew's past. But he looked at him, and he said, follow me. Now, then it was up to Matthew, wasn't it? <laughs> and Matthew had, had, had a choice to make. He could have said, no, thanks. Are you nuts? <laughs> but there was something, just like when we sang, something happened. And now I know something happened to Matthew when he looked into those love eyes of Jesus and knew that his past would be forgiven. And he chose to get up from that table and he was never the same. Okay, in chapter 12, Jesus sends out. Jesus sends out the 12 he sends out when he sends you and I out what is he expecting you and I to do when he sends us out of Bible study today and go to our homes go to our neighborhoods go to Meyer, go to wherever you have to go today he's sending you out there with a whole bunch of what you just learned and instruction about how he expects his child to go out there he's sending you out what's he expecting you to do Act like he, you act like a follower of Christ. You follow his instruction. You look like it, you live like it, that you go out there and you are salty and you are bright light for him. When he sends you and I out, that's what he expects. He doesn't say go out there and blend in with everybody. He sends you and I out to be different, to show a dark, sinful world that there is an answer. Oh, and then, and then look at verse 32. Well, first of all, look at verse 20. You can go out there knowing that if he expects you to speak,
You never, they, you never have to be afraid of what to say because the Spirit knows what you're going to say and He knows exactly how you're going to do it because He's going to give you what it takes. Oh, love that verse 20. And then verse 32, look at that. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father. So in other words, you go out there and you dare acknowledge who you are in Christ. You dare live out these instructions what will it make it worth your while? Someday he's going to acknowledge you before his father. He's going to say, Father, let me, let me introduce you to so-and-so. I mean, of course, we know the father knows everything. But to think that Jesus says, I will acknowledge you before my father. That's chapter 10, verse 11, by the way. But if you don't, if you go out there and you disown him, he says, I'll disown you before my father. Okay, John the Baptist in chapter 11. What do we learn from John the Baptist? What do, what do we learn? What happens in life when life doesn't go the way we, we think it should go? When we think, when we say to, when, when we think, well, this is not the way I expected God to work it out. This isn't the way I wanted God to work it out. I didn't expect him to act like this. I know, John the Baptist, when he sat in jail, I'm sure those human thoughts went through his mind. And when you start letting human thoughts go through your mind, what happens? What happened here? The word doubt comes in. Now, I think because, gee, we see Jesus doesn't get mad at this at all. Jesus knows that this is what happens to, be, to be even believers, the strongest of believers. Sometimes when life throws us a curve that we weren't expecting, takes us off guard, whatever, you start thinking, whoa, where in the world are you? Are you really who you say you are? Do your promises really come through? I mean, all of a sudden you start finding you don't have some pretty nice things to say. You sometimes even even have a little fist that you just want to shake at him. And John the Baptist, he's just as human, and he, but he teaches us something. If you've got a doubt, if you've got a question, even though John couldn't get out of prison, he sent his men. Where did those men go to? Right to Jesus. You got a problem with them? You go to them. You go to His Word. You got a question? You got you you you're you're floundering. Don't you wonder if Eve, when, when the devil said to her, did God really say? I mean, if she would have just ran to, ran to God because he was right there, said, you know what, I'm wavering. I might not have this clear. Um, this, I might not have what you said just right. This is what he expects us to do. Go back to his word. Go back to what he promised All right, and in verse 20, he says, um, or 21, woe to you, Chorazan, woe to you, Bethsaida. Remember how he said, woe to you, Holland, woe to you, Zealand, woe to you, Hudsonville, Jenison, Granville, woe to you, West Michigan. You've got, you got a church on every corner. You've got opportunities up the wazoo. You're going to be held more accountable. That is a wake-up portion of scripture that shows us to whom much is given much will be required and then what does he say about rest I love that word because what does stress do to you 
I mean, you know, if you, or what does a crisis do? I mean, you find yourself, you stiffen up and, and, and you just can sense the panic. And, and what does he say? Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, because you are weary. You just can't take it anymore. And he says, he's inviting you and I, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And what does rest mean? That means if you come to him, his spirit will start feeding you what you have learned. It will start feeding you that he is there, that that he, his will is perfect, and that that he will supply your needs today. And everything, when you, when you come to him, that means you reconnect with him. And he will feed you with, I'm your father. I'm God. You have Savior. My will is perfect. All these things, he said, and that you will find that rest. Rest is when he feeds you these words of truth, these promises that are true, and you will catch yourself going, oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, that's right. And you find rest. Chapter 12, we talked about Jesus going in through the wheat field and the disciples hungry and they were, you know, they ate a few and the Pharisees came all bent out of shape. And, and, that, and that was the week we started talking about what's non-negotiable and what's negotiable. So what is non-negotiable? I mean, that means you don't negotiate. It's non-negotiable. So what is non-negotiable? God's word. It's what God says. It's what the Bible says. That's non-negotiable. And what's negotiable? Those are things that you negotiate. I'm going to give you an example that happened to me last Thursday. Lady wanted to go over this non-negotiable, negotiable thing with me, and she had it twisted. And she said, they want to throw the organ out of our church. They don't use it anymore. It's broke. They said, let's just get rid of it. She says, we love the organ. She says, what is that, non-negotiable or negotiable? And I said, that's negotiable. And she said, no, no, we don't want it. We don't want it out. And I said, I know it's negotiable. Because you see, it is not, there's, the word organ is not in the Bible. It's, it's, an, it's a negotiable. I said, but this is, this is where I think we, we get it all wrong. You don't want the organ thrown out. You got a group of people that want to throw the organ out. Guess what he expects us to do? You come together and you negotiate. You talk about it. And what do you negotiate? You negotiate under the principle of a non-negotiable. And to me, the non-negotiable principle would be in this matter would be that, that in John 17, it says that Jesus, when he prayed for first himself, then his disciples, then all Christians, he, he expects, he said, this is what I pray for my children, is that they all get along. And he didn't say, um, and the old don't count, or the young get their way, or whatever. He doesn't say, he said, all my children, every age, my will for them is that they get along, that they stay unified. That means that they're going to have differences of opinion, but I want them to come and negotiate under the principle of let's see how this is going to unify. Let's see what we can do. Let's talk it through. Let's hear both sides. Let's work this out together under the principle of a non-negotiable. In other words, let's negotiate 
and let's see what the Bible says. Even though it doesn't say the word organ in there. But let's see how we can come together in this. Because what are we going to look like to this world? Because that's what Jesus said. I want them unified because they're, they're, they've got the world looking at them. And if Christians can't even get along, so he said, I want my children to be getting along and they can negotiate and they can come together and they can work out something under the principle of my word. So I think it's very important that we know the difference. Okay, and then in chapter... Um, his promises. His, his promises. Everything in this book, Joyce, is non-negotiable. Exactly. Why is it important what kind of soil that we have in our heart? I mean, if it isn't good soil, I'm telling you, God's word will not take root. And, you know, the things of this world will come at you. Um, you will get drawn to the things of this world. The pressures of um, crisis and life will come at you. And if you don't have God's word rooted in your heart, you're going down. But how do you get, how do you get rich soil? It takes work. It takes work. The more you get to know God's word, the more, you, the more you allow him to work in the experiences of your life. You let, you put all that together and that all makes good soil. I remember King Jehoshaphat, when, when the vast army was coming against him, he said, I remember when God did this. I remember when God did that. All these experiences, you remember how God got you through and that is getting soil ready. And then in chapter um, 15, what have you learned about the word guilt? I know you can only, guilt is, is terrible. It's supposed to be. It's a gift from God because God wants you and I to get rid of whatever is wrong. And the only place we can get rid of guilt is where? To him. The only place we can get rid of guilt is confessing our sin, and then the guilt will be gone. And then later on in that chapter, he talked about that another, another storm, and here comes Peter walking on the water and all that, and that's so well and good, but then he looks at the wind and the waves, and he starts to sink, and I said, what are the three things that sink you and I every time? What, your three things, you remember the three things and you have to write them in your Bible because these three things will sink you. And then those three things are worry, fear, and doubt. Worry, fear, and doubt will sink you every time. And I want to add a fourth one and that one is yeah, but. You say yeah, but. Oh, I have faith in God. Yeah, but. You just sunk. So, Fear, worry, and doubt, and yeah, but will sink you every time. And when you turn your eyes on Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, you can walk on the water. Okay, we talked about what's clean and what's not clean. He said, it's not what goes into your mouth that, that makes you unclean. Because you remember those Pharisees were trying to, you know, test them and, and, you know, trick them again. And he said, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what? It's what comes out of your mouth. So in other words, it's your heart condition that comes out of your mouth. 
So, and okay, what, what is going to, I asked you the question, what keeps you clean? And the only way I can really describe it is, okay, let's say your physical body and your hygiene. If you didn't take a shower for two weeks, if you didn't brush your teeth for two weeks, if you didn't change your clothes for two weeks, in other words, if you didn't change your underwear for two weeks, I'm just, I'm really laying it out there because if you don't do anything, does anybody want to be around you? What does it take to keep your physical hygiene up to snuff? It takes work every day, right? Yeah. Okay, spiritually clean. If you don't do what it takes to stay clean every day, does anybody want to be around you? Nope, because guess who's reigning? Me. You have to work at spiritually clean, just like you have to work at staying physically clean. You have got to work at what keeps you clean, and that is him. How much time do you spend in a day taking care of everything on the outside, but how much are you spending taking care of the inside to make your inside clean? Because what he's been trying to teach us in this whole review this morning is what's on the inside is what's going to come out. That Canaanite woman, I asked you, well, I hope you went through that. What's the best thing about that story? I think one of the best things, of course, was the Lord helped me. But when Jesus kind of played with her a little bit, and without her knowing it, saying, you know, even the dogs, and, you know, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. You know, and, and she came back and said, yes, Lord. In other words, she accepted who she was. See, this is again what Jesus says. I have done for you, but you've got to accept the fact that you need me. You've got to accept the fact that you can't do it by yourself. That whole Canaanite thing, that Canaanite woman was astounding um, example. All right, in, in chapter 16, um, what's the cornerstone question that, that Peter had to answer that you and I have to answer? What is the cornerstone question that, that sometime in our life you are confronted with this just like Peter, and what's that question? Who do you say that I am? You and I have got to answer that question because that's going to make a difference on how we live the rest of our life. Who do you say that I am? And he, that's it. You come to the grips with, who do you say that I am? You're my Savior. You're my Lord. You're, you're my everything. And, but if you don't come to grips with, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It is such a personal question that every one of us has got to be addressed and asked. And we've got to answer. That makes, it makes such a difference in our life now and in our life for all eternity. Okay, and uh, what must a follower do? And I said to you, I checked every version, and every version of God's word has this word in it. If you want to be a follower of Christ, you must, what? Verse 24, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Yeah. Somebody told me yesterday about someone who had, a girl who had tattooed on the back of her life, take care of yourself. Live your own life. She was telling me about what this tattoo said, and she said, oh, and she's such a wonderful Christian. <laughs> and I said to her, I said, you know, not, I guess I just have to say to you that that's just 
the opposite of what Jesus said you and I must do if we are a follower of Christ. It's not about me anymore. It's about him. This living my life. No, I have to live his life through me. If you want to be a follower of mine, you must deny yourself, take up your life's cross, whatever it is, and dare to follow me. That's a must. And then in chapter 17, we talked about were Peter, James, and John Jesus' favorites? Were they Jesus' favorites? No, because Jesus doesn't pick favorites. What did Peter, James, and John needed? They needed that experience for what was going to happen in the future. The other nine left back. They needed to experience what they needed to experience. Why? Because they, were, they couldn't heal that demon-possessed man. How come? Because you know what? Their faith was, in, was starting to be faith in themselves and who they were instead of, of, of complying to who they were in Christ. So when they asked Jesus, how come we couldn't do it? Verse 20, because you have so little faith. And then Jesus came back and said, but I tell you, if you have the faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move over there and it will move. So remember we said that almost sounds, you couldn't do it because you had little faith and yet all you need is a little faith. But the idea was it's not how much faith, it's who you have faith in. And so if your faith is in you or in someone or something else, then it's, the, he said, but if you have faith, even as small as a mustard seed in me, that is enough faith to be able to handle your impossible. Um, what's, who's the greatest in the kingdom in chapter 18? Just a reminder, who, who does, because boy, our, our human nature tells us that greatness is who you are and what you've done and what you've accomplished. And, and yet Jesus says, who's great in my book is what? He uses a child to, to show the example. I just want you to stay humble before me. I want you needy before me. I want you to never let go of my hand like a child doesn't let go of a parent hand. He says. In chapter 19, he talks about Anyone he, he's talking, you know, he talks about being single and all that and, and that and then he comes to this verse in verse twelve, the one who can't accept this should accept it. I just can't let you go today without making sure you understand that verse because every one of us has something in our life that we have to accept. It's just the way it is. Your husband passed away. It's just the way it is. I have cancer. That's just the way it is. But you don't have to like it. You know, you're not, but this is why it's so important. If you, you have to say, if you can accept it, you should, because if you can accept it, if you can, if you can accept it, what will that non-acceptance do to you? It will destroy you. It will, it will keep you from experiencing all what he's got for you. It, it, will, it will prevent you from seeing how he can be and he can supply and be what you need. Ruby? It seems that each of us has something to overcome. Yeah, and that's, an, that's right. It's either... We see that, the better off we are. 
That's right. If you want to use the word overcome or accept, there's something in your life that you that just wants to control you and you can't get rid of it and you're still blaming them a little bit for it or whatever. You have to accept it and trust that his will is perfect and he knows what he's doing. You got to let it go so he can free you up so that not another day is wasted. Yeah, we all have our own cross, and that's why you must deny yourself, take up that cross, and, and follow. Thanks, Llewellyn. That was perfect, exactly what Jesus said. Remember, again, he said, let the little children come to me. Remember the disciples? We got places to go, people to see. We got a schedule to keep. Uh, kids take time. Uh, they got snotty noses. Uh, let Get them out of here. And Jesus says, let the little children come to me. When does a child learn the most? When they're a child. Does a child need to learn? Are they born with all the knowledge of Jesus and salvation? No. They're born sinners just like you and I are. And who's going to teach them? We have to teach them. I look at some of you teachers that have been teachers for umpteen years, and you're retired now, so now you can come to Bible study. But I think of what you have done for children. I think of, I look at moms and us grandmas and great-grandmas if you don't take the time, if you don't take the time to teach them, they aren't going to know. And that's why Jesus said, let them come to me, because I think the next story shows that rich young ruler, those parents told, taught him everything but. I mean, he was a good man. He took care of a lot of people. He knew how to run a business. He was powerful. He, they taught him a lot. They, they did. They did a good job that way. But yet, they didn't teach him what really mattered because he was still missing. What must I do to enter heaven? And by the time he was an adult, all of that had gone so inside of him that when Jesus said what he needed, they, he, had, they, he left. When does a child learn the most? When do they accept the most? Is when a parent and a grandparent and a teacher, when they're telling them and teaching them, when they're young. That's right. And they have soft hearts because they're so trusting. That's why Jesus used them as an example. And finally, chapter 20. I mean, what a, I thought this was such a great ending to the bulk of Matthew 1 to 20 because, you know, here we got the, this parable about Jesus saying about, oh, there was, there was um, this, this vineyard owner who hired a person, you know, at the start of the day, and then he, were, he, he hired someone at the very end of the day, but they all got the same reward, and how easy it is to say that's not fair. But I hope that you have thought and pondered about that enough. You tell me if you've been, if, to me, if you've been blessed to know Jesus when you're young, you then go through life knowing who he is and learning more and more who he is. Have you ever said in your life, I don't know how I would have gone through this if I didn't have if I didn't have him. You think about that thief on the cross. Yeah, he got his rewarded. Today he was with Jesus in paradise. But you think of all what he missed during his life. His life was miserable. He got into trouble. He, and, and I'm telling you, this is why Jesus is trying to say, every day that you know me, even though, yeah, everybody gets the same reward of heaven, but... Be so thankful that every day we can wake up with blessed assurance Jesus is mine. And knowing that if we stay connected to him, we will be fine no matter what happens today. Because he's our father. He's God. We have a savior. The kingdom has come. 
His will is perfect no matter what happens, even though I don't think it is. His will is perfect. He's going to give me today what I need, and he's forgiven me, and he's going to help me to forgive others. I'd say we have got it made. What great instruction for us. So now, next week, Matthew 21, we are on our way to Calvary. <laughs>